we are beginning this study, and we're looking very hard at this um, principle in Romans 11.22 of the kindness and the severity of God. The kindness and severity of God. And this morning, I just want to talk with you a few minutes about the um, pathway to kindness. This is such an important topic. It's such a profound topic to begin to realize the there are those toward whom God shows kindness, and there are those toward whom God shows severity. And what we want to know, what we want to discover, of course, is who, the, who that is. Who is it to whom God shows kindness? And who is it to whom God shows severity? And on what basis? And, and why is that so? So that we are very clear about that, not only in, in our own assurance, so that we can have assurance that we are those who walk in the kindness of God, that we are those to whom God has focused his kindness. We are objects of mercy. We are objects of kindness. Uh, and to avoid participating in those things that, that uh, displease God to the point where we, that we uh, may make ourselves subject to his severity. So we want to both do two things. We want to display the complete character of God in our life. We want to speak of the character of God. We want to display the character of our Heavenly Father. And we want to do that in its fullness as is possible uh, for us as mortal beings to do. Uh, but there is a role for us to do that. We are to display the gospel not only in word, but in deed. Not only in what we say, but in, in our daily conduct. 1 John 2, 6 tells us that if anyone says they are in him, meaning in Christ, they ought to live as he lived. They ought to walk as Jesus walked. So this is a, a big missing piece in a lot of um, world Christianity. Uh, we're big on talk, but we're, we're small on walk, and especially in America. We're big on talking doctrine. We're big on talking the talk, and we that's why we can get on TV and listen to preachers all day long, and we never really know anything about their character until it comes out in some scandal or some kind of um, horrible uh, event occurs where we see their character, we see the display of their character. Remember, Jesus said that it was uh, one of the ways we could discern false prophets was what? By their fruit. In other words, by their character. Don't listen to what they say. Check out their character. And unfortunately, in our media-driven gospel these days, we don't have the opportunity to get close enough to these people, to these men and women who present themselves as preachers, to be able to understand their character. That's why I wish that this was uh, uh, these kind of lessons were done in person so we could get to know each other better. I want to know you. I want to understand you. I want to uh, enjoy the comfort and the blessing of your fellowship. And if in the discernment, quite frankly, of the mutual discernment, so that if, if there's things in me that you see that are contrary or incongruent to the character of Christ, you can help me see those things and help me overcome them. That's one of the things that we do within fellowship, is that I gently, kindly, one-on-one, -on -one, beginning, uh, offer you my thoughts and my concerns for things that I may see in your life, 
that are incongruent to the character of Christ. And so we do that for one another. That's part of the blessing that we are to one another. Now, some people don't like to get that kind of intimacy and fellowship. They like to stay aloof. They like to be uh, Christian brothers and sisters from a distance. <laughs> some people even put up walls. Uh, they want to be have fellowship in name only. But what I'm saying to you is that not only these lessons that I, I post here, but um, I hope to meet many of you someday or, or at least display in some degree my character over the, uh, by words so that you can have some confidence that I really am a Christian. <laughs> Nothing pleases me more. Nothing is a greater blessing to me than uh, when my wife or my children or close friends acknowledge some Christ-like trait in me. Uh, it, it's such an exciting thing. because it's, And it's not because I'm so great. It's not because I'm so virtuous in myself, of course. It's because um, I'm aware then that, that the work of God in my life uh, to, to cause me to do that which is pleasing in God's sight. Remember, Philippians 2, 12 and 13 tells us that we ought to work out our salvation. For God is at work within us, both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. So whenever you uh, are um, told that there's a character in you, there's a people acknowledge, especially those people that are closest to you. You know, if you want to know if someone is a Christian, ask the people closest to them. If you want to know if your pastor is a, really a Christian, ask his wife. <laughs> ask his children. If you really want to know if someone is a Christian, ask the people closest to him. They will be able to tell you. Because it isn't just those who say they are Christians. It is those who display that they are Christians that we are to trust. Especially in these last days. Where it's become so easy to call yourself a Christian. And there are so many Christian leaders out there who are just getting more bold all the time. And they're shameless. And, and their heresy and their error and the falseness of their character. They even display that character uh, in their presentations. It's just astonishing how in these last days, in these last of the last days, that this 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 double-mindedness, that you can say one thing and do another, and people will say, oh yeah, he's a good Christian. <laughs> I mean, when you get politicians or church leaders who are clearly morally decadent, lying, greedy, even sexually deviant people, but who are still considered Christians, because after all, we don't want to judge. Well, that's exactly what the Bible tells us to do, a judge. The Bible tells us to discern. Jesus said, beware of false prophets. Nowhere does the Bible say, oh, just close your eyes to, to people's behavior, because after all, we don't want to judge. That is a, a, a false teaching itself. No, we want to be careful to be those who walk in integrity. Listen, there's no greater joy. There's no greater delight. There's no higher privilege than to experience in an existential way, meaning where you live, 
the the genuine spirit produced character of Christ so that the fruit of the spirit which is really a display of the character of Christ love joy peace long suffering goodness meekness kindness gentleness faith these are things that show the world that Christ is real in fact i'd have to su- suggest to you this morning that that um the world's kind of tired of hearing about him if they don't see him. They're, they're sick of hearing about Jesus and seeing the devil. And I think they have every right to reject that at, at this point. I think the world has a right to say either show me or be quiet. <laughs> show me or shut up. To be crass about it. Show me or shut up. Show me Christ. I'm willing to listen to you tell me about Christ as long as you show me Christ in your conduct. But if you want to just talk to me about Jesus, where you're showing me the devil, I'm not willing to be a, a participant in your uh, or support by listening to your hip, hypocritical religion. And why would anybody want to do that? What's attractive about hypocrisy? Nothing. It's disgusting. And these, and this, these false teachers, these these charlatans on TV and on the airwaves and in the bookstores, are becoming more bold in these last of the last days. They're becoming more and more bold. They're becoming more, more shameless. In their display of their greed, and their wantonness, and their wickedness while they claim to be ministers of Christ. So, my point in saying all that is that as we look at Romans eleven twenty two, behold then the kindness and severity of God. We have to start there with that verse. He goes on to say, of course, to those who fell, severity, but to you, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you will also be cut off. So we have to be prepared to behold. We have he's that's an imperative. We are commanded to be clear about the kindness and severity of God. And then he tells us to those who fell, so we know that God's severity is reserved for those who fell. Well, what does that mean to fall? Well, we're going to talk about that. I would suggest to you right up front here that to fall means to be anything other than in Christ. To fall means to come short of the glory of God. To fall means to come short by pursuing some other means of righteousness other than the righteousness of Christ. Some other self-made religion as opposed to God's Son. Let me just tell you right up front, the severity of God is reserved for anything that is not of Christ. We experience the kindness of Christ and the kindness of God in Christ by being in Christ and displaying that in word and deed. The world needs to see the kindness of God. 
But we must also be clear that God's severity is reserved for those who either profess to be Christians and chronically, habitually show themselves to be hypocrites, or the severity of God is reserved for those who just outright reject his Son. God has vested all, not part, his entire saving action in his Son. There's no other revelation to come. There is no plan B. God has spoken in his Son. It tells us in Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. And it's a unique, it's an exclusive, and it's a final word. And so, to us who are given the grace and the mercy to be in his Son, to be in union with his Son by grace alone, through faith alone, we have become objects of unspeakable kindness, unimaginable kindness. The kind of kindness that addresses us at our very need, our, our, our greatest need, and that is for reconciliation with God and then to be united with his Son in such a fashion that we share in his inheritance and we know that we are in him because we are becoming like him. See, there's the great point of assurance, is that we are like him. To believe in Jesus is to become like him. And if you're not in a place where you're experiencing, however slowly, however haltered, haltingly, however you stumble from time to time, imperfectly your progress is, there has to be progress, beloved. A Christian without progress in Christ-likeness is no Christian at all. Do you know of anybody who professes to be a Christian, and perhaps they've been professing to be a Christian for decades, and yet you can see no growth in their character? You can see no growth in them at all. They're just as... Uh, full of character defects and faults and behaviors that are contrary to the gospel as they were 20 years ago. Well, that's not a Christian. That's not a Christian. That's a Christian in name only. And the world is filled with those kind of people. The popos are commanded by people like that. So, so let's be clear about these things. Because God's severity is real. It's something that's occurring in the moment, by the way. God's severity, the wrath of God, is happening in the present because it's an eschatological wrath, just like salvation. And God's kindness is eschatological, meaning that the final judgment and the final separation the final judgment of those that are righteous by grace are reach fullness in their salvation, and the fullness of God's wrath is also experienced on that final day. That day has been brought into human history so that it's already at work in the world. There are already those who are walking in God's kindness, clearly, 
If you're in Christ, that's you, that's me. And there are those who are already walking under the wrath of God, even in this moment. And we'll learn more in this series of what that looks like. God's kindness is displayed toward us inasmuch as he is conforming us into the image of his Son. So that we cry, Abba, Father, just as the Spirit of the Son moves in us. But God's wrath is also displayed, particularly through those who make a profession of Christ, but whose lives are defined by habitual evil, wickedness, moral decadence, and hypocrisy. So that's that's a, a preview, a preview of what we're going to be looking at. And, and let me just assure you, if you are in Jesus Christ, if you are in Christ, if you've been born of the Spirit, you are not destined to God's severity. You are under grace. God's wrath is not something you will ever experience. You will experience his discipline, just as a father disciplines his children, but that's different than God's wrath. So it's a beautiful part even of God's character that he so loves the Son, he has so vested his revelation to the world in his Son that whatever Jesus is, is God. Whatever God is, Jesus is. The revelation is perfect. We can look to Jesus and we can know that that's what God looks like. And to think that you and I have been commanded to share and participate in that ministry to the point where we want the world to be able to look at our fellowship and to look at us as individual Christians and get a really good idea of that's what God looks like. Do you sense the high calling there? Do you sense the very sobering reality of God's purpose for you? I mean, to believe in Jesus is to be like him, right? And to be like him is to display the character of God into the world so that the world can say, ah, so that's what God is like. I would have not known who God is unless I had met you. And now that I meet you, I realize that Jesus is real. I'm going to place my faith in him so that I too can become like him. That's the kindness of God. The severity of God, of course, against, is against those who, and reserved for those who either profess Christ in a hypocritical way or those who just outright reject him. God's love for the Son is such that he allows no other. He allows no other means. There is no access to the Father except through the Son. And that in itself is a display of, of the severity of God. So what does it mean to fall? It means to fall short of faith in the Son. And and again, it's ascribed to some other form or some other pathway to righteousness other than the righteousness of Christ. Now we're going to feather it out. We're going to we're going to continue to look at this so that we can get clearer and clearer and clearer because it's truly a blessing. I mean, it's it's really refreshing and renewing my heart just to do this study in preparation of these lessons. So I want that for you too. It's transformative. 
I want you to so love God. I want you to increase in your love for God and for his son by the spirit and for each other that you, as I said earlier in another episode, will be able to share in the doxology that Paul declares at the end of Romans 11. All good theology leads to doxology. You know what doxology is? It means that we we declare the praises of God. We rejoice in awe of God and his beauty and his glory. Okay, so Ephesians chapter 4. Paul is setting forth the fact that there is this revelation, the mystery hidden throughout the ages has now been revealed in the gospel, and that is that the people of God are one people. And it isn't on the basis of law. It isn't on the basis of ethnic heritage. It is on the basis of God's mercy that we become God's people. It is on the basis of God's mercy and his kindness and his grace. And it's through the means, not of becoming um, Jewish in culture or ethnicity. It's not about becoming uh, part of God's people through circumcision and dietary laws and obedience and observance of the Mosaic law. No, it's by grace, through faith, in his Son, and in his Son alone. Therefore, the way has opened now to the Gentiles, and the mystery is fulfilled, has been revealed inasmuch that there is one people of God, both Jew and Gentile. And there's one means by which you become the people of God. And that is on the basis of mercy, on the basis of mercy by grace, through faith, and through the power and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. This is the mystery of the gospel that's been revealed in the New Testament. Is God God of the Jews only, or of the Gentiles too, Paul will ask in this series? Romans uh, 9, 10, and 11. And the answer is, no, he's of the Gentiles too. That's the mystery. He that is a Jew is one inwardly, not outwardly. And circumcision is of the heart, not of the flesh. And this was the stumbling block for Israel. This was the stumbling block. They were proprietary in their, in their relationship with God. Even after the resurrection, even after Pentecost, in the early years of the church, Paul and the other apostles had a fight against this Jewish notion that somehow you had to become a Jew before you could become a Christian. That's how proprietary the Jewish people had become of God. They owned God. It was like some kind of franchise. <laughs> and God was not free to do what he will. You remember even Peter and Acts chapter 10, for example, he was uh, uh, well into his ministry. Pentecost had occurred, and he was well into his ministry. He's gone up on the rooftop to, to, to wait for dinner to be prepared. He was hungry. He was praying. He went into a vision, and he saw this sheet come down and all these non-kosher animals on it. And the Spirit spoke to him and said, kill and eat. And Peter said, nope. 
never do it, never have, never will. Those are non-culture. Those are not against. Those are not in favor with the law. We can't do that. And the Spirit said, "Do not call unclean that which I call clean." And this happened three times before Peter finally got it. Okay, apparently there's something for me to do here. Some messengers came from Cornelius, the Roman uh, authority, and his associates who were waiting for him back at Cornelius's house. They led Peter to Cornelius and this group of people. Peter began to preach the gospel to them, and the Holy Spirit fell on the Roman Cornelius and his associates, and it was the first clear indicator that the entrance into the people of God was evidenced by the gift of the Spirit, not by circumcision, not be, by becoming Jewish in culture or ethnicity, or being a convert. In other words, you were being converted into Christ. You weren't being converted into Judaism. And that was, that was mind-boggling for Peter. It was mind-boggling at first for the apostles, and they had to get that message clear. And so in Acts chapter 15, they realized suddenly, they realized that, that it was, there was a, a, a new era had begun, the new covenant era had begun, and that in, under the new covenant, unlike the old covenant, uh, under the new covenant, that, that the people of God had been reconstituted, and it was Israel had been reconstituted. See, the church doesn't replace Israel because the church includes Israel. Israel is inclusive of both Jew and Gentile because it has nothing to do with ethnic heritage. It has nothing to do with the Mosaic law. It has everything to do with the mercy of God. See, we all, Jew and Gentile, come to God through Christ on the basis of mercy. On the basis of God's mercy. And so Paul is saying here then in Ephesians chapter 4, that's what precedes the therefore. Therefore, he says in the context here, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or understand, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Then he goes on to say, Therefore I, the prisoner in the Lord, exhort you to walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Now remember, he's speaking to Gentiles here. But there's no longer Jew or Gentile. So he's speaking to the people of God in Ephesus. The fact that they're Gentiles is history. They are now one new man in Christ. Um, and he, he says that. He says that back in Ephesians chapter 2. So the therefore has a great deal of prelude to it. With all humility... In gentleness, with patience, bearing one with one another in love. Be diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now listen to this. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called in the one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, Grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So, the first thing we have to understand on our pathway to kindness is that 
The unity of the Spirit is what defines the church. It's not the unity based upon doctrinal statements. It's not the unity of the Pope. It's not the unity of a denominational standards. It's not the unity of, of, of uh, even our water baptism. It is the unity of the Spirit. The fact that we all have been made partakers in the Spirit is the identifying marker of the reconstituted people of God, both Jew and Gentile, now one new man in Christ, with that shared identity based upon the work of the Spirit. The unity that we have, not even unity that we pursue, it is already done. The unity that we have with other believers throughout the world is an accomplished fact, because at Pentecost, the one identifying marker for the unity of the people of God became the Spirit's presence within us. That's why he asked the Galatians in chapter 3, verse 1, Oh, who foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? Because they had heard the gospel, they had acted in faith, they had experienced the power of the Spirit, and now they're being lured away into thinking that they're the people of God on some other basis, particularly circumcision and dietary laws and the observances of days and feasts and, and, and holy days and Sabbaths. And no, 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 Paul is saying. That's another gospel, and it's worthy only of a double curse. See, there's the severity of God, huh? And once you understand the kindness and severity of God and you're clear about these things, you won't be able to open your New Testament in the same way you did in the past. You will see it very clearly throughout the pages of the New Testament and, of course, without the, old, the pages of the uh, Bible com totally. The, very, the kindness and the severity and the basis upon which these are the, each is shared with people. Okay. So, one point of unity, and that is the Spirit. He didn't say that there are two peoples of God, there are two different plans for Jew and Gentile. That is, that is repugnant to the gospel. That is a repugnant dispensational doctrine that is nothing short of heretical. It's a lie. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you're called, and one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Now keep in mind, in light of everything I'm saying, how radical it was for Paul in the first century to tell people there is no Jew or Gentile, but you're all one in Christ Jesus. Galatians chapter 3. I mean, we read that today with something of a yawn, but in the first century that was just, it was scandalous, especially if you were a Jew. For, for a thousand years, the Jewish people have been told they are the people of God. And you enter the Abrahamic covenant by circumcision. Male circumcision defined the whole family. The head of the family of any group, Jewish family, was the, the, the males in the family, and they had received circumcision, and so the whole family was sanctified and included in the covenant of Ab with Abraham. So reaching, so far deep was this understanding 
that when Jesus told a group of Jews who had believed in him in John chapter 8, who had professed belief in him, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. They said, what do you mean free? We're already free. We're children of Abraham. See, they could not make the transition. They were so devoted to a thousand years of Jewish tradition that they could, see, could not see that that tradition was all good and fine, but it had been fulfilled in Jesus. And they weren't prepared. They weren't prepared to see Jesus as the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise. Instead, they were clinging to the Abrahamic promise as being all that was sufficient, and hear me now, that was all, that all sufficient apart from Christ. In other words, they were telling Jesus himself, him standing right in front of them, we don't need you. We're already good. We believe that you're the Messiah, and we have expectations of what that will mean. But our understanding of the Messiah has nothing to do with being set free. We're already free. We are children of Abraham. We're in. We're good. What we expect from you as a Messiah is to get rid of these dreaded Romans. Destroy the Samaritans and raise up Israel back into world prominence as the dominant race. Show the promises of Abraham to be true in Israel. See, they, they rested in their fact that they were Abraham's children. And it blinded them. They had the law. They had the temple worship. They believed they had everything they needed if they could just get rid of these Romans. They had been an occupied, occupied country for, for hundreds of years. And so they, they didn't believe they needed anything more. What they needed was something less. And, they, and the less was they needed less Roman influence and dominance. They needed to stop being an occupied people. And then for God to display his promises to Abraham by restoring the kingdom to Israel. And so they felt no need for Jesus to set them free. That was the stumbling block. So let me ask you, do you have anything in your life, any form of religious tradition, any form of religious activity, any form of religious duty that puts you in a position that you rest in that as your assurance instead of Jesus himself? It's a natural default. If you've been in Christ for any length of time, it's a natural temptation to begin believing that you're good because you go to church. Believing you're good because you're baptized. Believing you're good because you subscribe to a certain doctrinal statement or a confession or you recite the creed, or you go to the communion table once a week. Yeah, I'm good. No, I'm in. I watched a movie uh, called Fury one time about a, 
a, a tank crew going through World War II, and a new recruit came into the crew. And one of the men on the crew asked this new recruit, are you saved? And the new recruit said, well, I go to church. And one of the other crew members said, that's not what he asked. He wants to know if you're saved. He goes, well, I'm baptized. He says, you don't get it to you. That's not what we asked. Are you saved? <laughs> it was, a, it was a quite a powerful moment in a secular movie because that's exactly the question. Are you in Christ? Listen, hell's going to be filled with people who went to church. Hell's going to be filled with people who were baptized, but who were not born of the Spirit, who were not in Christ. It's the masses, in fact, Jesus said. It's not those few who entered into the narrow way. It is those masses who walk through the wide gate and follow the broad path, which means the majority of people who profess to be Christians who say, Lord, Lord, are going to, on that day, hear these horrible words, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who work lawlessness. So there's only one basis upon which we come to Christ. And as by grace, through faith, and on the basis of God's mercy. And we stay there. We grow in that. We grow within that context. We are who we are because we are in Christ. Baptism, church attendance, all of that stuff is all fine and good. It's all part of being a Christian. It's all part of being in a community. They're all part of identifying markers, but they are not the basis upon which God has expressed his kindness to you. So we have to continue in his kindness. Remember our text. But you, to you, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness. So how do we continue in his kindness? We rest in Christ and Christ alone. That's how we enter the people of God. That's how we maintain our fellowship in the people of God. And that's on that basis that we will be finally perfected when our redemption is fully realized. Okay, so the first thing we have to understand on our pathway to kindness is that there's one body of Christ, one unity, and that is the unity of the Spirit. And But then he says, each one of us is given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led ca captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended in the lower parts of the earth? Christ fills all in all. He who descended is himself, also he who ascended, far above the heavens, so that he might fill all things. There's no part of the universe that isn't Christ's. There's no part of the heaven or earth that isn't Christ and under his authority. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, and of the full knowledge of the Son of God, 
to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ, so that we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, that is, Christ, from whom the whole body, being joined and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the properly measured working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Now that's a mouthful, isn't it? But what I'm saying to you is this. From Ephesians chapter 4, 7, what Paul is saying to us, through verse 16, he is saying, and please hear me now, that the gifts, the pastoral gifts, are given to the church for the building up and edification of the church, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the work of service towards one another and towards the evangelistic outreach to the world. Tragically, since Constantine, in the formation of that dreaded hierarchy of bishop, priests, and deacons, modeled after the Roman Empire, not modeled after Christ, we've got this clergy thing going on. So that ministers are set apart and that the ministry occurs only by ordained, credentialed ministers. We can hardly move to the left or right without a minister's permission. So that church became a spectator sport instead of a place where we all come and share with each other and encourage one another, exhort one another through mutual sharing of spiritual gifts. And so the instead of equipping the saints for the work of the ministry, the ministers now these days usurp the work of the ministry. They usurp the work of the ministry and they keep you immature so that spiritually immature, emotionally immature, mentally immature, so that you are dependent upon them. And oftentimes, and that's because they themselves are dependent upon their career goals and their stipend. I mean, it's a mess. It's a disaster. And it's 180 degrees apart from what Paul just described here. No, the gifts of the Spirit, the pastoral gifts of the Spirit, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, those are all gifts of the risen Lord the ascended Lord to his church towards individuals who have one purpose. Christ's purpose for giving those gifts are to see that the saints are equipped for the work of the ministry. Not so there'd be a elitist ministry class for the building up of the body of Christ and to bring the saints into maturation into maturity. So let me just be clear about this. The spiritual gifts are given to the church. The pastoral gifts are given to the church for the equipping of the saints for the ministry, not for the career goals of a set-apart class, an elevated clergy. 
Nothing is more contrary to the uh, purposes of God in his church than to have an elevated clergy who does all the work and we all sit back and pay and pray and stay spiritually immature the rest of our life. If you are not being equipped, if you are not being brought into spiritual maturity so that you are actually a functional adult within the kingdom of God, walk in as a child of God, fully equipped, fully mature, then you're under a ministry that is a um, ministry in name only. It's a pseudo-ministry. Listen, God did not call you and me in his son to go sit and watch other people do all the work. He did not, that's my water bottle, by the way. <laughs> he did not call us to, in uh, his son, to be spectators. While some elitist, elite class of ministry people with credentials and, and um, titles perform for us up on the stage once a week. Now we even got professional musicians. It's only getting worse. Professional musicians that get up and sing repetitious choirs that get us all worked up in some altered state of consciousness. And we call that spiritual. Oh, God was really moving today in the worship service. <laughs> no. You were just in a mosh pit. You're in a baptized mosh pit, oftentimes. And you get these guys and these women who get up there and they perform for you. And they, they, they sometimes preachers are more entertainers and inspirational uh, speakers or stand-up comedians. So if you're going to walk in the kindness of God, you have to recognize that there's one basis for the unity of the people of God, and that is the Spirit. And that the Spirit has been given by Christ to equip you and to bring you into maturation. There is no elite, elevated, ministerial class in the church. That's all a pagan idea that found its way into the church. And we as Protestants and evangel excuse me, evangelicals think, oh, it's wonderful, it's wonderful now. We, we don't have bishops, priests, and deacons. Oh, yeah, we do. We just don't call them that. Okay, so that's the second point. Therefore, there's another therefore. This I say in testifying the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their mind, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they have become callous, having given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Now, why would Paul have to say that? Why would he say, why would he have to say, therefore this I say and testify in the Lord, that you walk no longer as the Gentiles walk? It's because there is the default religion that calls itself Christianity, where people continue to walk as they did before they were in Christ, but now they just have this talk. They talk about being Christians. So Paul's saying, no, 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 don't do that. Don't go there. If you are in Christ, no longer walk as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, their darkened mind. 
And then he says in verse 20, But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you heard him and were taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus. You notice he doesn't say, if indeed you heard of him or about him. So I know some of your translations may read that way, but that's another problem. No, if you heard him, my sheep hear his voice. My sheep hear my voice, Jesus said. Christ's sheep hear his voice. If you heard him and were taught in him, the Christian life begins by hearing the voice of Christ call you to himself. And then you're taught in him. That's where the teachers come in. That's where the spiritual gift, the pastoral gift, the pastor-teacher comes in. Just as truth is in Jesus, to lay aside, we are taught in him. If we heard his voice, we've been taught in him, just as the truth is in Jesus, to do what? To lay aside, in reference to your former conduct, the old man, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and instead to be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and to put on the new man. See, put off, put on. The new man, which in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Therefore, laying aside all falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. So we're getting down now. He's laid out what's indicative. He's laid out what's required. He's laid out the command. And that is to walk in the unity of the Spirit, to be equipped to grow into a mature Christian in Christ, to come to the full stature. Think of that. That's a powerful thing in itself, isn't it? And of the full knowledge of the Son of God, he says back in verse 13, to a mature man, man and woman, that's not a gender statement, to a mature person, to the measure, to the measure what measure, of the stature, which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Grow up in Christ means to look like him, talk like him, look like him in your character, talk like him in your behavior, in your conduct. Talk and walk like Jesus. And then we put aside the old way of life. We put aside the old way of thinking. We put aside the the Adamic the way we're habituated to behave and and order our conduct when we were in Adam, and instead, instead put on the new person who is in Christ and rehabituate ourselves to walking and talking like Christ. And then in verse 25 through 32, he says this, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. This is what it should look like. If you're following the unity of the Spirit, if you're being equipped, if you're growing up in Christ, and you're put aside the old man and his and the habituation of his conduct, and you've taken up pet on the new man, and you're being rehabituated to live and think like Jesus, this is what it should look like. You lay aside falsehood. You start speaking truth, each one of you, with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. We be angry, we may be angry, and yet we do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. Verse 28, he who steals must steal no longer, 
but rather he must labor, performing with his hands what is good, so that, so that what? He might prosper? He might build a 35,000 square foot house or have a private jet? No. So that, listen now carefully, he will have something to share with those who are in need. That's the biblical grounds for prosperity, by the way. I mean, it's, it's crazy. There are at least three Christian television channels on my TV. And they're all about how to get your best life now, how to prosper, how you too can have all the material wealth that you've ever wanted. And it's being taught by guys who live that way, by men and women who live that way. Jesse Duplantis is building a 35,000-square-foot home on the backs of donations given to mindless, deceived people that he teaches and preaches to. He has pictures of his private jets hanging on his walls as, as testimonies to his hypocrisy. He who steals must steal no longer. That's what we should say to those men. That's what we should say to those charlatans. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good. So that, that's a Greek purpose clause, by the way. So that, so that, so that what, Rick? He will have something to share with the one who has a need. There's a reason we work, and that is to Take care of ourselves so we're not dependent upon anyone and to share with someone who's in need. Period. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for building up what is needed. Remember, need. There's two points. What is the kindness of God? It is a useful kindness, we've learned. It is a useful kindness, and meaning that it deals with people based upon their need, their truest need. We don't look at people in a superficial way. We look upon them based upon their need. And just as God does, God moves towards us in his kindness, not with just a useless kindness where he just stays at a distance and has a warm feeling toward us that we call kindness. No, God's kindness is we move, he moves towards us and he acts. He moves towards us in action, meeting the need. Sometimes, oftentimes, a need that we didn't even realize we had, and God meets that need, and we are transformed. So we're to speak in such a way that we build up people based upon what is needed, so that we will give grace to those who hear of. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption, let all bitterness, how do we grieve the Spirit of God? He says, let all bitterness and anger and wrath and shouting and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. That's how we grieve the Spirit of God. By displays of bitterness and anger and wrath and shouting and slander. Put that all away from you, he says, along with all malice. Now, here's the key verse. This is what you've been waiting for for 55 minutes <laughs> and I'm almost done. Instead, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, graciously forgiving each other, 
just as God in Christ also has graciously forgiven you. Instead, be kind, Christatos, to one another. Don't just show basic human affection, natural human kindness. No, the kindness he's calling to us to here is divine kindness. Display God's type of kindness towards one another, a kindness that is unfathomable in its measure, that is gracious and useful. Do things where we act in kindness toward each other, towards unbelievers, and even towards our enemies. How would it change our marriages? How would it change our family situations if verse 32 was observed? Instead, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, graciously forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has graciously forgiven you. And then let me close now with just the first two verses of chapter 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved us and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Beloved, we are to love one another and thus show ourselves to be true Christians. We are to love one another not just with a natural human affection, not just with a, a, a natural human decency that is common to all people, believer and unbeliever. We are to love one another, care for one another, encourage one another, forgive one another with a, divini- a divine character, with a divinity in us, placed there by the Spirit. Second Peter chapter 1 tells us that we are participants in the divine nature by the very fact that he has given us a new heart. He's placed his spirit within us. To be under the new covenant is to have a new nature, to have the spirit dwelling within us. In other words, to be fully empowered, fully enabled to display the character of our Heavenly Father in His Son, through His Son, into the world and towards one another. It has always been God's purpose from the beginning, since Adam, that humanity would be the uh, pinnacle of His creation, the image bearers, those who display and reveal His character into creation. Of course, that was shattered in Adam, but it has been restored now in Jesus Christ. And in you who are in Christ, that work is in you. So we're not just saved, hanging on till Jesus comes back or till we die. No. The work is begun in us. God is actively working in you to conform you into the image of his Son. Meditate on that, rejoice in that, study for that, pray for that, walk in it, and give the glory to God. 
and let the doxology of Romans 11 at the very end of that chapter be your confession. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and strengthen you and keep you in his grace. Amen.